Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. I am your host, Professor Matt Hannon, and this episode forms the fourth and final instalment in a mini-series all about community carbon offsetting. So if you haven't listened to the mini-series already, I'd strongly recommend listening to the first three episodes as this is a bit of a deep dive and you'll find them in the podcast feed. So back in March 2023, we held a workshop at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow on carbon offsetting for communities. And this was part of a project funded by the Scottish University's Insight Institute and Strathclyde Centre for Sustainability. The event focused on Scotland's fast-growing nature-based carbon offsetting market and what the potential implications might be for local communities. It also considered the potential role communities could play in shaping and governing this emergent carbon offsetting market. Before we go any further, what exactly do we mean by nature-based carbon offsetting? Well, here, landowners choose to invest in natural forms of carbon sequestration, such as afforestation or peatland restoration, to generate carbon credits for sale on the open market. And these credits are bought up by organisations wanting to offset their own carbon emissions by funding reductions or avoidance elsewhere, instead of cutting their own emissions. In the first episode of this mini-series, we heard from Alistair McIntosh about the meaning of community and what role communities could potentially play in this fast-growing offset market. The second episode was a panel debate all about how we frame, evaluate and facilitate community benefit from nature-based offsets. The third episode explored the state of the nature-based offset market today. Specifically, we discussed how these offset projects are financed, owned and governed, as well as how wider market and policy structures shape the form these projects take. So, in this fourth and final episode, we explore the positive and negative impacts associated with nature-based offsetting for communities, as well as what actions could usefully be taken to ensure these offset projects both empower and enrich communities. And finally, we consider different ways that project developers might facilitate community participation in this marketplace. 
So just before we get into the pod, a reminder that if you haven't already subscribed to Local Zero, then please take two seconds to hit that follow button. And don't worry, it won't just be my voice today you'll hear, but from a wide variety of experts who are at the event. So let's get stuck in. Now, we covered in some detail in episode one about what we mean by community. However, as we talk so extensively in this episode about community benefits and community wealth building, it is worth just reminding ourselves about what community actually means. As with most complex terms, this is a highly subjective and often contested term. It is often and occasionally lazily used to refer to a group of people inhabiting the same local place, often termed a community of place. This can, of course, be applied correctly, but when we start to disaggregate that community of place, we might also find communities of practice or interest, i.e. a group of people who share a common interest, value or concern. It may also be that these communities of practice or interest transcend a specific local place, but still form a coherent and tight-knit community. And we're going to hear a little more on this from Alistair McIntosh, the writer, academic and activist who has written so extensively about this term. There's two main types of community. There are communities of interest. For example, a local shooting club, a bird-watching group, landowners, venture capitalists who have a common interest in what can happen in a given place. And then there is a much wider overarching community of place, such as a community council or a community land trust where these things are democratically accountable to the principal stakeholders as the people who live in or round about that area. Community takes us very deep into what it means to be a human being. We talk of soil, soul, and society. Soil, our relationship with nature. Soul, our relationship with what it means to be most deeply human. And society, our relationship with one another. The community is not just another word for society. Community is about an integrated approach to living, such as we see well expressed in the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which form part of Scotland's national performance framework. So we're kind of partly there, we're theoretically there in terms of policy dynamics. And to me, the importance of this two-day conference is to carry us further. And the fundamental question, do communities have control? Do they have agency in what is happening on the land in which they live and for which they have historic and current-day responsibilities? So why is this important? Well, because depending on the demographic, geographic, historical context of that community, they will not only have a different perspective on what constitutes a benefit, but might also be in a stronger or weaker position to take advantage of that benefit, given the economic, environmental and social capital at their disposal. This will also have a bearing on the appetite the community has to capture that benefit, or indeed avoid the disbenefit, i.e. how hungry they are to improve their community's welfare. Okay, so we've reflected on what one might mean by community, but what about community benefit, specifically in the context of voluntary nature-based carbon offsetting? Now, at the workshop, we heard from Professor Tavis Potts from the University of Aberdeen, who unpacked the logical connection between natural capital stocks, 
flows and societal benefits. Now, before we hear from him, let's just pause and unpack these terms too. Natural capital stocks relate to the elements of nature that provide the foundations for life on Earth, and by extension, a fully functioning economy and society. These include, for example, natural habitats, species, and associated processes, such as carbon sequestration, nutrient and water cycling, and the primary production base for food chains. So ecosystem services are derived from these natural capital stocks and relate to the functions and processes that can be turned into societal benefits with varying degrees of human input. Examples of these ecosystem services include climate regulation, water supply, and waste breakdown. And finally, societal benefits are the changes in human welfare derived from the consumption of goods or services that are derived from these ecosystem services. For example, this might include food, fertilizers for agriculture, medicines, prevention of coastal erosion, tourism, and finally, and difficult to measure, cultural or spiritual well-being. So let's hear a little bit more from Tavis now. I had the um, pretty uninspiring title in the agenda of different framings of community benefits, examples, etc. So I probably should have been a little bit more on top of that, so apologies. Developing a, a voluntary carbon offsetting scheme is, is an intervention in a very dynamic social and ecological system. It's just one intervention amongst many that can be made. Uh, so, for example, uh, restoring peatlands, increasing broadly forestry to, to capture carbon. It's an intervention in a system. And this system, one way of expressing our relationships, our human and ecological social relationships, is via the lens of natural capital. It's not the only way to do it. It also doesn't override, for many of us, myself included, a deep cultural and spiritual connection to nature, to land and the benefits I get. It's one way of abstracting it. And natural capital, i.e. the trees, the environment, ecology, provides services, i.e. carbon sequestration, that gives us people via complementary capital, by labor, by finance, by communities, a range of different types of benefits. So a healthy climate is a benefit that we can draw upon from nature. And communities of place and of interest get lots of different types of good things from nature. We get climate, we get food, we get recreation, we get cultural connections, a sense of place. And any intervention in this system can actually start to alter these relationships. It can cause different trade-offs. We have to be explicit about what these trade-offs are. It can cause different impacts. It can also change not only these relationships between people and place or people and nature, the benefits. It can also importantly change the relationships between those who benefit from those services. So the benefits, for example, might accrue to a community, those benefits might then accrue to international financiers. So the nature of those benefits can change if we intervene in this complex system. So we have to be clear about that. And a natural capital approach recognizes that these multiple and conflicting processes and layers, the interconnections, and their different ways of expressing value. It's not just about removing carbon, it's about a, a social and an ecological system that creates different benefits for people and expresses different relationships. So taking the example of participatory community benefit mapping Tavis had undertaken for the Deben Estuary in Suffolk, in the southeast of England, 
He also spotlights how a change from a salt marsh to a mudflat in this area begins to transform the benefits that the community expected it would derive. This is especially relevant to nature-based carbon offsetting, as the marine environment, which he refers to, is a growing focus for offsetting projects. Back to Tavis again. Over 40 different types of benefits were identified by three different groups of stakeholders. And what I want to draw you to is that the idea of benefits is highly diverse. We're not just talking about carbon, we're talking about fishing, wildfowling, food, river protection, golf as a benefit, don't that. But anyway, some people it's important, right? Storm protection, a whole diverse range of benefits that exist from a local uh, environment and a community within that environment. In the second workshop then, basis of we've now identified the features and the benefits of a system, we start to explore scenarios of how that can change. So for example, in this Deben estuary case, we're moving from a salt marsh dominated system, the green, and with sea level rise, that will likely convert that into a mud flat dominated system. This could be from a, an equivalent in the highlands, moving from a, an agricultural system to a forested system or restoring a peatland system. There is a major change of ecology in that place. Now, as a result, if we've got salt marsh here and mud flats here on the top row, we are seeing a change in the different types of benefits in that system as we move from salt marsh to mud flats. So if you look at the right-hand side, on the top we have different benefits that uh, we get from salt marsh. We know these benefits because we've done the work on actually scoring uh, and mapping what the, the levels of benefits are from particular habitats. Uh, you can see how uh, there is a decrease from, say, aesthetic benefits, tourism, nature watching, uh, sea defense. Those benefits shrink as you move to a mud flat dominated system. So as you change the ecology, you change the human benefits and they shift. And this is all done on working with local knowledge, working with local nature providers, local interests. So reflecting on Tavis's insights and other experts at the workshop, we can point to a number of important characteristics of community benefits derived from natural capital. The first is that these benefits are subjective. What one community may view as a benefit, another may not. Why? Well, every community is different with their own set of resources, values and priorities. Second, benefits are time sensitive. Something that the community perceives to be a benefit today may not necessarily be seen as a benefit tomorrow. And this is because communities, the landscape they inhabit and the wider society and economy they form part of are evolving all the time. Now, someone who made this point eloquently at the event was Dr. Jill Robbie from the University of Glasgow, who discussed the subjective and time-sensitive nature of these benefits relating to nature-based offsetting, later referring to the example of deer fencing to protect newly planted trees. One nut which I have, I cannot crack in any way that I think about it, is that it's extremely challenging to factor in community impacts over the type of timeframes that we're talking about. So the communities can, can be consulted, for example, before the project is registered. That will not be the same community in 30 or 50 years time. There may be community needs such as requirements for extra housing capacity, additional community facilities, or other land use conflicts that arise in the future due to our changing ecosystems or agriculture because of climate change that we won't be able to build in 
at the very beginning and design of the projects. So this balance between the permanency of the project and the need for flexibility is just a very challenging problem to solve. Imagine we have widespread woodland creation. We're not going to shoot all the deer in Scotland, so we need to put up a lot of deer fences. Deer fences are very high, and that might interact with our right to roam legislation and our abilities to have recreational access over land. We may only realise that <laughs> once we've put up the fencing and people start complaining about the fact that we can no longer have freedom to go over these moors because we have woodland creation. There are also two other important considerations associated with natural capital community benefits. The third, benefits are not necessarily accessible to everyone everywhere. There are asymmetries in who is able to access these benefits and what they might require in order to do so. And the fourth is that benefits aren't neutral. There are winners and losers. The creation of one benefit might be at the detriment of another. These are trade-offs. This is because we're dealing with a complex, interlinked system where impacts in one area may have unintended implications elsewhere. As such, a myopic focus on carbon capture may erode ecosystem services elsewhere, all things being equal. We hear again from Tavis on this point. Often in the research and the analysis, benefits are just benefits, but we actually don't look at who actually has access to those benefits and how that changes. So we can look at the importance of the system of natural capital and providing benefits. But we can also look at the reliance of different groups in society on different aspects of natural capital. Now, this is meant to be totally chaotic. You're not meant to understand it. Actually, what it shows intrinsically is that we have deep, complex, and many layered relationships with nature. For example, we have reed beds and salt marsh. We have the benefits that it can provide, i.e. prevention of a coastal erosion or aesthetics. And we have different users of those benefits, the Environment Agency in England or uh, recreational water users. And we can plot through our workshops and the discussions and scoring that we're doing that reed beds are really important in providing prevention of coastal erosion. And who's that important to? Well, it's important to the Environment Agency because they have a regulatory remit around that. But it's also important to sort of boatyards, the boat builders, where their operations are sited. Going back the other way, recreational water users, people canoeing, coastal rowing, for example, aesthetic benefits are really important to them. It's important to have a beautiful place, a healthy ecosystem. And those benefits are provided in part, importantly, by certain habitats like salt marsh. So we can go back and forward in these relationships. What our work is trying to do is that it's demonstrating the importance of place-based approaches and stakeholder-centered approaches. To look at this diversity, intrinsic uh, connections of nature and the relationships between nature, benefits and people. Our work on participatory mapping, we found actually it's the process that's important, not the outputs. It's actually that we develop, we develop a common language and a common understanding of a place in depth with local communities and local interest groups. And it builds in different ways of knowing natural capital. And this does ultimately reflect the interlinkages between people and place. And it can support communities taking charge of environmental assets on their terms on the benefits that are important to them. These are complex systems, they're complex and they're dynamic. So when we're actually looking, talking about voluntary carbon offsets, 
We're just really trying to manage here for one particular benefit. And perhaps we should be considering actually the complexity and the interrelationship of all the different benefits in the system. Because maximizing carbon removal will change other types of benefits. And we should be very upfront and aware of that before we go into communities proposing these significant large-scale schemes. And benefits are not neutral. There are actual justice implications. This connects very strongly to, for example, the just transition agenda of who can actually access and use benefits. How can we engage different community members' capabilities to engage in these schemes and to engage in accessing the benefits from natural capital? And my final point is understanding this dynamic system, as complex as it is, should be a part of designing and implementing natural capital interventions, i.e. nature-based solutions. We need to have something like this or similar first before we go in proposing large-scale changes to social and ecological relationships in places. So moving forward, Tavis explains there's a useful three-step approach when looking to undertake participatory mapping of community benefits from natural capital with communities. First, Identify natural capital in a place, identifying the benefits it provides. Pour over maps together with local stakeholders and communities to identify features of interest. The second is then you explore scenarios and trade-offs. What happens when you intervene and restore or remove certain habitats? How do these natural systems change and which ecosystem services are strengthened or weakened as a result? And thirdly and finally, logic chain development looking at the relationships between the benefits and the beneficiaries and to which groups do these benefits flow. Central to deriving community benefits from nature-based offset projects is not just how land use changes, but also how it influences land ownership and governance. Now, in a bid to ensure that offsets contribute positively rather than negatively to empowering and enriching communities on the path to net zero, we heard from Miriam Brett from the think tank Future Economy Scotland. She spoke about the concept of community wealth building in the context of natural capital offsetting. So let's begin with what we mean by community wealth building and the context within which this has emerged in Scotland, i.e. where land ownership and markets in Scotland are not necessarily supportive of delivering long-term community benefit and control, and how, if we are not careful, the nature-based offset market could erode rather than enrich community benefit. The ownership and governance of land today has obviously been shaped by a number of distinct features that are intertwined with its politics, its history, its culture, geography, language. But Scotland has some pretty distinct land features. It has a very large rural land area. Around 98% of Scotland's land mass is classified as remote, rural, not my choice of phrasing, I would never say remote as a Shetlander, or accessible rural. And it has, despite waves of land reform legislation producing progress, still has a highly concentrated land ownership structure. We still have a largely unregulated land market. Anyone in the world can buy land, relatively little scrutiny. And actually, that's quite rare if we look at international examples. And rural landowners benefit from a number of tax exemptions um, and reliefs that can, that can and also have access to a range of, of subsidies. So there's, there's quite distinct land features here. And these features have contributed to a strong investor demand in Scottish rural land. Um, and although there remains significant uncertainty surrounding the prices, um, prices in the voluntary carbon market, 
there is a broad consensus that prices will continue to rise over the coming decades. And it's likely that this also puts upward pressure on land prices as well. And that's expected. And, and also in the context of looking at, for example, the potential of new capital uh, natural capital markets and payments for ecosystem services that will create opportunities to monetize um, and on the current trajectory push up land prices further. Now this is all happening in the context of you know very vast inequalities in wealth and in income in power imbalances and a very acute rural housing crisis as well and it's important to acknowledge that as this is the, the backdrop when we're looking and exploring about the implications of the rise of, of carbon offsetting. So where does community wealth building sit in all of this? And first, what is it? Um, community wealth building is a relatively new approach to local economic development. It seeks to redirect wealth back into the local community and place control and benefits in the hands of local people. So it sets a direct challenge to an extractive model of, of economic governance, ownership and management. Um, so in place of an extractive and unequal approach to economic development through which we can see the outcomes, we can see the inequalities in power, um, we can see inequalities in class and race and gender as well as regional imbalances um, and the ways in which an extractive model has exacerbated that. Community wealth building seeks to build a community centred approach through the physical and financial transfer of assets into the hands of local economies, into the hands of local communities. So in short, community wealth building is a people-centred approach to local economic development that puts wealth, control and benefits back in the hands of local people. Breaking this down further, what are some of the core objectives towards achieving this? Let's hear from Miriam again. Centred on five key pillars, and these were set out by the Centre for Local Economic Strategies. The first, and most importantly for this, is the social, uh, socially just use of land and property. Land is a key expression of economic power and concentrated ownership of land and property continues to be a key driver of inequality. If stewarded through more equitable forms of ownership and management, land can be, become a source of local wealth generation, centred on climate and environmental stewardship and social justice. Second is that of plural ownership of the economy, scaling regenerative businesses like um, cooperatives, like worker-owned firms, like community-owned initiatives, in which wealth is shared much more broadly between owners, between workers, between consumers, allowing wealth to flow through to local um, people and places and back to them rather than being extracted. Third is making financial power work for local places, a focus on increasing flows of investment within local economies by harnessing and recirculating the wealth that exists as, as opposed to attracting um, external capital necessarily. The fourth is that of fair employment and just labour markets, increasing employment opportunities um, as well as noticeably improving the quality and pay and conditions of jobs in local areas. Um, Community wealth building also necessitates anchor institutions. These are place-based, often kind of large-scale employers. And as anchor institutions can take measures like the promotion of inclusive employment practices and also living wage, um, the, delivering the real living wage. And uh, fifth is the progressive procurement of goods and services. That's shifting the cost um, being a dominant factor when considering who gets a contract to critical considerations like workers' rights, like workers' paying conditions, climate considerations and social value. 
And the aim here is to develop den a dense kind of ecosystem of local supply chains to support local employment and retain wealth locally. And community wealth building was first rolled out in, in Cleveland, Ohio, um, where there was vast post-industrial um, decline, chronic levels of underinvestment and, uh, and population decline as well. Um, and it was developed with a specific aim to localise and retain city spending um, in, in anchor institutions through scaling local cooperative owned business models with a real focus on racial and economic justice. But as we'll see from the examples I'll go on to talk about, it can be centred and tailored towards the needs of those communities. Miriam then went on to point to some key indicators of success for community wealth building in the context of offsetting, which included, firstly, local broad-based ownership, minimising absent ownership and encouraging community ownership. Second, large local multipliers, prioritising the recirculation of profits, where profits are reinvested rather than extracted from a local area. Third, collaborative decision-making with an emphasis on democratic governance. And finally, fourth, inclusive well-paid jobs for the local community, which underpin economic security and living standards. This offers a clear set of principles that can be directly applied to nature-based offset projects to help evaluate whether they are designed to support community wealth building or not. Taking the first point regarding local broad-based ownership, it is far from a given that nature-based carbon offsetting will be a positive force in driving community wealth building. As outlined in episodes two and three, the current concentration of land ownership across a very small number of landlords in Scotland means only a small minority of people will capture the majority of the revenue and benefits derived from these projects. This minority will also wield the majority control over how these projects evolve and who they benefit. A variety of land reform changes were identified as necessary, such as public interest tests for large land purchases, stronger community right to buy powers, and richer finance for community land buyers to access. For more on this, it's worth listening to episode three. Turning to the second indicator of success, large local multipliers, the aim is to retain as much revenue as possible locally and ensure local control of these funds. Naturally, community-owned and run projects would likely see the highest proportion of funds recirculated locally, but this assumes investors are from within the local community, which is not always necessarily the case, with a significant proportion of shares often bought from investors far beyond the community of place. The alternative model here is to establish a community benefit fund. As we covered in episode 3, the common model for nature-based offset schemes at present being led by the private sector is for the establishment of an arm's length special purpose vehicle, i.e. a separate legal entity, that owns the project. A proportion of the profits are then channeled into a community development trust, which is responsible for distributing these across the local community to support local recirculation of revenue and community benefit. This model has been borrowed from the renewable power industry, with some commentators pointing to how this can offer private sector developers a social license to operate within local communities. This is achieved by giving the community an annual dividend from the project and providing them with control over where, when and how this money is spent. You'll now hear from Elsa Rayburn, Chair of Community Land Scotland, who speaks about some of the advantages of the community ownership model versus private ownership with an associated community benefit fund. 
we've seen in places like um, Egg and, and Gear and Golson, when you own that natural capital and that resource, it's up to you what you do with it and it's up to the community what they want to do with it. Um, and any wealth that's generated from that is immediately reinvested back into the community. So I think we've got a fantastic model already. Um, and there's always sort of a desire, it seems, to invent something new. Um, and we've got, a, we've got a product that works perfectly um, for, for Scotland's rural communities in particular. Um, but I think if, if we're looking at community benefit themselves, there are some good models in the community benefit world. So the renewables sector um, had a scheme where £5,000 per megawatt generated would go to a local community benefit fund. So as a concept, that was really good. It's been discredited because of the value. £5,000 is far too low given the value that's generated from those renewables scheme. And it wasn't compulsory. But I think if we could build on a scheme like that for particularly for carbon credits in terms of, um, you know, a site is going to generate X thousand tons of carbon over a period of time and then what's what's the right percentage of that to go back to the community um, and to actually make that compulsory that you can't register your carbon credits on the Woodland or Peatland Code until you've got that deal in place. So I don't think it's beyond the wit of us to actually design something based on what we've already got and the principles that we already have and it's actually just tweaking those. Now I know there's always going to be individuals and businesses um, and estates that say oh this scheme won't possibly work if we have to give the community 15%. Um, yet we know from the renewable sector and from other development sectors through Section 75 agreements, yes you can. It does work. So how do community benefit funds work in practice? Grant Moyer from the Cairngorms National Park Authority outlines the community benefit model they are hoping to implement with private sector partners in restoring peatland across the Cairngorms National Park as part of the Revere programme. Here, 10% of future revenues are channelled into the Cairngorms Trust for community redistribution. How is the 10% chosen? It was in terms of what we think um, worked for the model that we were looking at in terms of how much was likely to come through, but um, uh, it's not based on... Um, it was trying to work out something that would work between the um, the landowner ourselves and others to make sure that we had sort of different proportions that seemed to work for different people but it's not a um, 10 percent of what should be applied to everything it's for that project at that time was something that we negotiated and got to so i think there's there's always a question around that um so the kind trust is community company that that delivers all the community local-led community benefits within the national park um, and has lots of little people on it so there's a little bit of structuring in terms of what we've said is that it should be spent um, on things that will also help to benefit um, the climate and biodiversity emergency, but we haven't, haven't specified specifically what it is. There's also, I suppose, the bit that we've, we're still working on that in terms of what that looks like, because the reality is that the first payments into any community fund are a number of years off. Um, so we've got a bit of time to really try and nail down exactly what that looks like. Um, but I think what we wanted to try and do is to tie it back to making sure that the, the funding was spent on things that were still going to to address the, the twin emergency because it's the key thing that I suppose is driving the park plan and a lot of the stuff that's happening in the park. Reflecting on Grant's insights, as well as hearing about other examples of community benefit funds from nature-based carbon offsetting schemes, such as from Trees for Life and also the Flow Country Green Finance Initiative, the following discussions emerged. The first was, what is an ethical share of profit or revenue that should be channelled to the community to support community wealth building? Also, how is this decided and by whom? 
As we heard from Grant, these funds ought to be cognizant of what level of profit sacrifice or revenue sacrifice that landowners and investors are willing to forego. But the other question is how much funding does a given community need to drive forward meaningful community wealth building? The second discussion related to what caveats or strings should be attached to these funds to ensure they are channeled into projects that are not only in synergy with the principles of mitigating climate change, but also raise the level of social justice. Is it appropriate to dictate to communities in this way? Because by extension, it is eroding their agency and potentially undermining procedural justice, i.e. fairer distribution of decision-making powers. But without these checks and balances, might we see these community benefit funds supporting projects that are anathema to net zero and a just transition? Third, who exactly decides what projects are supported by these funds and how democratic are these processes? Is it the will of the community as a whole or a select few trustees who decide? To what extent is there any third party quality assurance around this or best practice insight into how these funds are designed to operate more fairly and democratically? Fourth and finally, should these funds focus on investing purely on projects within the local area or should a portion of these funds be awarded at a regional or national scale, which could still generate some wider benefits for the community in question? Also, is it fair that only the communities neighbouring these projects should receive financial compensation, whilst others go without? Ultimately, the answer probably lies with what the community wants to do with these funds, as long as they are made aware of the broader advantages of aggregating up smaller pots of money to deliver projects at a much larger scale that can benefit multiple communities. The third indicator of success for community wealth building identified was collaborative decision-making. We've already discussed the importance of community ownership in supporting other community wealth building aims, but it's also central to collaborative decision making, especially where we see community owned and led organisations operate legal structures, such as cooperatives or community benefit societies. Now these are built on democratic governance arrangements such as one shareholder, one vote versus one share, one vote. But moving beyond models of ownership and governance, another critical consideration is the approaches that private and public sector organisations looking to lead on nature-based offset projects engage with the communities and facilitate their participation. Now, there are various different definitions of what these terms of community engagement and community participation mean, but we hear from Dr. Caitlin Hafferty of the University of Oxford, who helps differentiate between these two terms and who also explains why community participation is so important in this decision-making process. What is engagement and participation and why is it important? How can we clarify exactly what we mean? Because there are lots of different understandings, not only between different disciplines, different areas. So we do engagement and participation in healthcare, in the planning sector, with digital innovation and tech. There are so many different meanings and definitions between different areas, between different areas of practice within different organisations, between different area teams even. So it can get incredibly confusing to actually really define what it's meant. And this is not the only way of understanding participation, certainly not, but I tend to see it. And when I talk about it, I tend to clarify from participation and democratic theory, which can kind of be a, a bridging and nesting understanding for these concepts of any ways of kind of ethically involving people in processes, structures, spaces and decisions that really impact their lives and working with them to achieve those kind of equitable and more sustainable outcomes really importantly on their own terms. 
Public and stakeholder engagement, however, is often framed as a more formal process that could be carried out by an organisation. So organisations are often tasked with doing that public engagement process. And that, by its very nature, is closing down those decision-making structures and the extent to which people can actually really be involved in decisions just by the fact that it's being led by an organisation. So really what I tend to explore is what are the kind of barriers around that and how can decision-making processes be opened up or closed down depending on the structures um, in which they're uh, enacted. And these are really kind of rooted in, as I said, kind of deliberative democracy, social justice issues, and really focused on and critiquing the parameters around equity, trust, power, and various other dynamics. And there are kind of often three main reasons that organisations will do engagement and why it's important for an environmental organisation, be that in the public, private or third sector. People morally have a right to be involved in decisions that affect their lives. Engagement can also help make much better decisions. I think often evidence and knowledge within environmental organisations is framed in one particular way as scientific knowledge is, ecological knowledge maybe, but actually local knowledge is are evidence that should be incorporated. So actually bringing in those different perspectives and different knowledge types can really help understand very complicated and wicked challenges that have lots of multiple facets and different perspectives involved. So it can really help enhance that evidence base. If the organisation is evidence-focused and evidence-led, then that's a really important consideration. And then it also can help build more trustworthy and legitimate decisions or legitimate um, decisions that are perceived as more legitimate. So particularly in the, the public sector, maybe that's quite important or from my experience working with public sector organisations in, uh, in England. Moving more into the realm of deliberative participation in decision making, Hafti explained how communities need sufficient levels of capability, capacity and confidence in order to do this. So first, capability. This refers to the skills, knowledge and experience that communities have at their disposal to participate in a given marketplace. But the second relates to capacity, and this is the opportunity that communities have to be able to apply these capabilities, or bandwidth as it's often referred to. Consequently, they may have the means to participate, but not necessarily the opportunity due to limitations around time, finances, etc. The third category was confidence. Now, confidence building is necessary to overcome a community's nervousness around participating in such projects. Ensuring they have faith in themselves that they can and should participate is crucial. And guidance and clarity about what role the community is expected to play is a very important precursor here too. Now, what we heard was that communities often lack one or more of these three C's and thus struggle to participate. On capacity and capability building, we heard about the importance of community development plans. These were considered important because if a community already has a development plan in place, it is in a much stronger position to understand how offsetting fits within their vision for the future. However, Communities are often constrained in their ability to formulate such plans due to limitations in capabilities, such as skills, or capacity, such as time and people. Communities are therefore in need of targeted training and resourcing. For example, the provision of funded, experienced community development officers. From a confidence perspective, a critical first step here is transparency and helping communities to understand the often alien or complex information regarding these projects, market rules, legislative requirements. 
Communities also need to be made aware of what is at stake, both in terms of what could be lost, but also what could be gained from participating in these natural capital projects. Now, neatly capturing many of these points is Zoe Laird, the regional head of communities from the Highlands and Islands Enterprise. I think one of the key things that underpins all of this is a community having a plan. I think that's one of the bits that's perhaps missing from the landscape at the moment is more support for um, communities to develop plans to start those discussions that are really valuable um, and that bring them to a place where they're able to say, this is actually what we as a community want and this is how we want to articulate it. And now we're going to be able to have a conversation with the local landowner um, about what, what's important to us here. It, it It's a way of, I suppose, maybe moderating the discussion to something that's much more forward-looking and, and hopefully practical. Um, we want this, you want that. Where's the, where's the way uh, we navigate through that? So I think that if we modified this, this sort of steps approach and the tools associated with it, we could add in things around governance and constitution, um, undertaking needs analysis, what does that asset need to be managed and support the growth and understanding of uh, communities who want to engage in that work. And when you build that together with your community empowerment uh, rights, you, you suddenly find that we do actually have a relatively powerful toolkit but what we don't have yet are communities who feel or see the need to engage in that, especially in relation to natural capital. I think it's so new that um, the conversation's been quite neat, quite small, um, but needs to be shared more widely now to open up people's ideas to not just the challenges um, that were highlighted this morning, but I think also the opportunities that um, Miriam and uh, Trees for Life are, are demonstrating. And, and it does take it back to exactly what those communities need, which is housing, schools, services, um, jobs, etc. And for me, it's a route way to that potentially. And that's what I'd like to see happen. This view was also echoed by Dr. Jen Roberts, a senior lecturer at the University of Strathclyde and frequent Local Zero contributor. One of the things that's become quite, quite clear, but hasn't necessarily been very... Uh, hasn't been a focus of the conversation so far is about how how much of a distribution in terms of like community resource areas across different communities in Scotland. Um, a lot of the talk has been around kind of natural capital and natural resource, like the availability of the sorts of environments that we're looking to restore as part of carbon offsetting activities. But we've heard about communities, for example, in the Cairngorms National Park, 22 communities, all of which have got kind of community project offices. Um, and yet there are other communities that don't have these these people at all and so when you're talking about bottom you know communities leading on things let alone how organizations engage with communities if you have this big mismatch or inequality across different areas of Scotland about what the community capacity is then everyone's starting on an uneven playing field and that has been quite concerning to hear about today and I think that how you engage or how you, communities can lead on these projects will probably be based on which which communities have that resource. Crucially putting in place these three C's of capability capacity and confidence to support community engagement and participation cuts both ways too. It's not just from a community's perspective and their ability and willingness to participate in an externally led project, but also that of the company or organisation leading the project. Both parties must have all of these in place to effectively collaborate with one another.
we can also add a fourth C, cultural calibration. Here we refer to the need for these external parties, for example those leading an offset project, to first immerse themselves in the community they wish to connect with. We began to hear about this in episode two, and the importance of informal long-term engagement, and to ensure that we are also targeting place-based outcomes which are sensitive to that community in that place at that time. Going one step further, it is important to understand the idiosyncrasies of local communities. Different communities may harbour different cultural norms, values and ways of working. These all have an important bearing on which approaches might work best in terms of community engagement, conflict resolution and legitimacy building. In short, they may not only have different priorities and needs, but also different ways of working in order to meet these ends. For example, in Alistair McIntosh's book Soil and Soul, he reflects on the long-standing tradition amongst some Hebridean communities of Scotland about how islanders are judged on their track record of serving the community before they are given the time and space to contribute to proceedings on community issues. These types of soft institutions, i.e. the norms and practices that characterise one community from another, must be understood before they can be meaningfully engaged with. Like any relationship, we must get to know one another first before working together towards a shared goal. We'll hear again from Professor Tavis Potts, who explores the need to learn and calibrate, as well as some potential ways forward. I have a really healthy scepticism of professional facilitators. <laughs> I've seen when we were negotiating, for example, um, marine protected areas in, on, in, the, in the Western Isles, in Barra, for example, in Oban, um, I saw how professional facilitators destroyed uh, the policy agenda by not understanding fishing communities and fishing cultures. So I think a process of almost of ethnographic engagement with communities before the process begins and reflection within that process is, is one way of knowing, different ways of knowing. Um, just taking the time to, to understand and explore and connect, I think, before you facilitate is, is really important. Don't, don't rush it, you know, to go in there with good intentions. So we've almost reached the end of our Carbon Offsetting for Communities mini-series. But before we conclude, I wanted to share with you a view from beyond the British Isles and across the Atlantic in the United States of America. Whilst this mini-series has flagged a wide range of key issues that urgently need to be addressed to ensure that voluntary, nature-based carbon offsetting doesn't undermine the welfare of rural communities in Scotland, it's clear that here in Scotland we've already made some important progress and are hopefully in a stronger position to make the urgent changes we need going forward to support community wealth building. Making this point is Professor John Lovett from the Loyola University New Orleans College of Law. I've been coming to Scotland for years because I'm interested in Scottish land reform, and I currently serve on the Land and Human Rights Advisory Panel for the Scottish Land Commission. So my uh, first big takeaway from this conference is that uh, in, in one sense, Scotland is a wonderful place uh, because these conversations are happening at a very high level in a very open and transparent way. And Scotland is already starting from a place that to me seems very advanced in terms of thinking about community wealth building, taking net zero seriously, thinking about just transitions very seriously. So I'm enormously impressed. And there are some advantages that Scotland has that I'm struck by. Everyone knows each other. Uh, it's very easy to pull people together. Um, although there's certainly 
ideological or political divisions about whether one should rely on communities or private markets, and, and those are kinds of debates we have in the U.S., there's a kind of commonality of interest that uh, is, is really striking. And just to contrast that with the states, um, one of the big things that, that would, we would be talking about if we were having this conference in the U.S. today would be the role of race and how the, 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 the organization of race in the United States has skewed people's access to wealth, access to energy, access to safe environments. And it's incredibly striking to be here and not have that word come up at all once. So it, it, there's a kind of, the fact that Scotland conceives of itself as a community that's very inclusive, that's not divided by race, that's not divided in kind of tribal terms, I think is a great advantage that people maybe n don't realize. So that's one thing that is a big takeaway. Second thing is, I, you know, I, I think because of Scotland, Scotland's politics right now, you're much closer to being able to enact some of these very progressive ideas than we are in the United States. The fact that you have a community a benefit bill that's currently being proposed by the Scottish government is remarkable. An individual congressperson might be able to introduce a bill like that in the U.S. Congress, but it would never get anywhere. So you all are, because you're a smaller community, because these ideas are already so well entrenched in the political discourse, you have a huge advantage. So that's why I'm going to keep coming back. And there concludes our four-part adventure into the complex and fast-changing world of voluntary nature-based carbon offsetting and what it might mean for communities. Thanks to all those who've featured in these four episodes and also thanks to the project team members for making it all happen. You've been listening to Local Zero and if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues and you can tweet us at LocalZeroPod or toot us at Mastodon using hashtag LocalZeroPod. If you have any longer questions or comments, you can also email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. Finally, please remember to check out our website, localzeropod.com, where you can listen to the full back catalogue and search for episodes by keywords or topics. You will also find the other episodes that are part of this mini-series on carbon offsetting for communities. So thanks again for listening to this mini-series, and bye for now. Produced by Bespoken Media.